You're listening to a teaching from Vintage Church LA. This week we're hearing from lead pastor Gare Jones. All right, folks, if you have your Bibles, please turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, that's totally fine. We'll have the passage on the screen. But we are in our second week on a series called Encounters with Jesus, learning about Jesus through the Gospel of John through the lens of how he relates to people. Last week we looked at how Jesus relates to skeptics and how he loves them and honors them and honors their questions. This week we're looking at the other end of the spectrum and in John chapter 3 we see Jesus have an encounter not with a skeptic but with a very religious man, the elite of the religious world. And through that encounter, we see something unique and something amazing about Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn to John chapter 3. I'm going to pick up the story of Jesus encountering a man called Nicodemus. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into the mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly, heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Nicodemus was a really religious man. He's described as a Pharisee of the Jewish ruling council. In other other words, he is the leading religious scholar of the day. He's the opposite to a skeptic. He's probably old by now to be on the ruling council. He's had a long and faithful life of serving, the, serving God and being faithful in his religious 
piety. He's a Bible teacher. He is a wealthy, older religious studies professor. I mean, he is the religious elite. And here he is coming to Jesus by night. Why is he coming to Jesus by night in secret where no one can see him? Well, to understand that, we actually have to go back again to the passage immediately before this to understand why Nicodemus, the religious elite, the person in charge of the religious systems of Israel, is coming to Jesus by night. Immediately before this, Jesus has done something dramatic. He's done something shocking and has scandalized the religious elite. And we read of this in John chapter 2. And we have it on the screen here in John chapter 2, this very famous account of Jesus cleansing the temple. Let me read it. When it was time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove You have authority to do all of this. Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The famous account of Jesus going into the temple, getting a whip and cleansing the temple, turning over tables. A Jesus that you rarely see, but getting angry. And to understand why he did this, you have to look more closely at the passage. It was said to be the time of the Passover. That is a feast, a festival of Israel celebrating their escape from Egypt. Where they were rescued by God, but part of their rescue was to sacrifice an animal. To symbolically say, man, we are so broken and it's either I die or the animal dies. And hopefully someone can stand in my place. And Israel was saved because of the sacrifice, that something else was sacrificed instead of the Israelites. And this is symbolic throughout the Old Testament of God trying to teach the Israelites that we're radically broken. Something is wrong with us on the inside and we're guilty of the evil in the world. And could it be that maybe something else could take the punishment for us instead of us paying for our own crime? And so every year, this festival would happen called Passover, where people would come all across Israel and beyond. Jews would gather, would travel to Jerusalem to sacrifice an animal, to retell the story of the brokenness of humanity. And maybe there could be someone who could actually pay the price instead of us. The problem is, of course, that you're traveling a long way and you can't bring an animal with you that far. And so it was quite common. And actually, it's spelled out in the Old Testament that when you get to Jerusalem, you can buy an animal there. And you're coming with your foreign currency. And so there'd need to be 
a foreign exchange there. And so in the temple, there was a, a money market, a foreign exchange, just like when you arrive at the airport in the old days before credit cards, and you change your money, and then you go buy an animal, and then you go sacrifice. But Jesus enters into the temple and sees this, and he overturns the tables. I grew up thinking that he was just angry that they'd put kind of stores inside the temple. That they'd put like a Starbucks in there or something. And this is supposed to be a place of worship, not a place of trade. But of course, that's not quite true because in the Old Testament it says we should be able to buy something at the temple. Jesus actually turns over the tables for two reasons. The minor one is what we see and what we hear around the time is that they were actually charging too much money for the animals and also the foreign exchange. Do you know when you arrive at the airport and that's the worst place to change your money? You know that, right, don't you? It's exorbitant rates. It's the same thing here. They were actually charging way too much. They were making a buck off the desperate need of people who just arrived. But there's a greater reason why Jesus turns over the tables, which is actually more about prophetic drama. That Jesus acts in a way to symbolize a truth he's trying to tell them. That he's overturning the tables, he's interrupting, he's disrupting the whole sacrificial system in order to convey a message of what he's come to do, which is why they ask him, not why are you so angry? They kind of knew that, but he was doing something else. He was disrupting everything, stopping the sacrifices. And they said, what authority do you have to stop the sacrificial system? Like, don't you know we have to do this? Why are you stopping it? Why are you doing this to prevent people? And he says, well, Destroy this temple, and I will build it again in three days. Which is a cryptic answer. Sometimes you just wish Jesus would speak really plainly, right? But he's very clever. And he said, destroy this temple, and I will rise it again, raise it again in three days. And it says he's referring to his body. In other words, he's saying, this temple is about to become obsolete. A new temple is coming. A new place where humanity can connect with God. And it's no longer going to be through this sacrificial system. Through this temple, there's a new temple. And that temple is me. No wonder then, talk of this gets to Nicodemus. What on earth is this guy doing? Interrupting the sacrificial system? Talking about the temple's going to be obsolete is one thing to get upset with exorbitant exchange rates. But it's another thing to say that this whole system is about to end and he is going to be the new means of connecting to God and being forgiven for our sins. No wonder then he comes at night. And he comes not because he's loving the message of Jesus. He comes with this very interesting phrase in verse 1. Let me get there. In verse 1, he says this. He says, sorry, no, verse 2. Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who's come from God. For no one could perform the signs you were doing if it were not for him. In other words, 
Nicodemus is coming to Jesus going, look, teacher to teacher. I'm actually not going to reject you fully. I know you've come from God. But look, let's just calm down a bit. Right? Let's work this out. He's coming to do some backroom politicking. He's coming to kind of bring Jesus into the religious elite so he'd stop disrupting things. He's come to negotiate. He's come to calm Jesus down. But what does Jesus do? I love the fact that Jesus doesn't even entertain backroom politicking. But straight away, Jesus explains to Nicodemus what that whole temple scene was all about. He says in verse 3, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. See, both Jesus and Israel were talking about the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God is simply language for the world as it should be. Our relationship with God as it should be. That the world healed and restored without pain or death, without anxiety or depression, without any breakdown in community divisions or racial injustice. The kingdom of God is the summary of life as it should be. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, if you want life as it should be, it's not going to come through religious observation. It's going to, be, it's going to come if you are born again. Born again. Now Nicodemus rightly goes, uh, time out. I have no idea what you're talking about. Born again. What does that mean? Now, for us in today's culture, born again has a sometimes exciting meaning or sometimes a kind of weird meaning, right? I remember growing up, and in, in the UK, I'm not too sure about here, but in the UK, no one liked being called a born-again Christian. You were the overzealous ones, the over-religious ones, actually the ones who like were super religious. Oh, you're born again. You're one of those born again types. But for Jesus, born again doesn't mean super religious. Because in front of him is the super religious, Nicodemus. And he's saying, that's not it. Actually, being super religious is not the way to the kingdom of God. It's this different route called born again. Now, in Greek, this word again has a double meaning, which I think Jesus is actually meaning here. The Greek again can mean from the start. So once again, new. That you need a new life. And the word again also means from above, which is why some other translations, born from above. That you need a new life that is born from above. That actually, that is the way to the life without pain and suffering and depression and anxiety. It's not through performance. It's not through doing more religious observance. You actually need to be completely born again spiritually. You actually need to start from scratch. You need something done to you, not do yourself. 
you must be born again. Now, Nicodemus rightly isn't very impressed. He says, how can someone be born when they're old? He said, surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Now, I originally ended up growing up reading that going, he's not actually literally asking that question, is he? I mean, this is the academic religious elite. Of course, he knows Jesus doesn't mean climb inside your mother's womb. No, he's being very British. He's being very sarcastic. He's going, dude, you're being ridiculous. You can't be born again. Oh, my word, I thought you were a teacher. You're worse than I thought. He's being defensive, and he's being offensive, because ultimately he is offended at what Jesus is saying. He's offended because how can you say to the religious elite, the person who's done everything right, who's gone to church every Sunday, knows the Bible through and through, teaching everybody the Bible through and through, giving all of his tithe, doing everything right, how can you say to him, dude, you got it wrong? That's not the way. No wonder he's going, whoa, whoa, hang on. This is getting personal now. So Jesus tries to explain it further. Tries to explain it in language that Nicodemus would understand. And so in verse 5, he says, look, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and of the Spirit. Now to us, that doesn't really help explain what Jesus is talking about. But it does for Nicodemus because he knows his Old Testament. He's speaking his language. And throughout the Old Testament, whenever the prophets in the Old Testament would look ahead to that day when God heals the world, fixes it finally for good, that was called the day of the Lord. That when that day would come, it would always be used with imagery of spirit and water. Here's a verse to show you. In Ezekiel chapter 36. I think we have it on the screen here. This is the prophet saying, this is one day what God is going to do to heal the world. It says in verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you. And move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. In the future, the Spirit, images of the Spirit and metaphors of water will come to cleanse and to renew and to heal this broken world. True cleansing is coming. And Ezekiel says it's going to come not through your observance. It's not going to come through behaving properly. It's not going to come through more teaching that somehow we can better ourselves. But it's going to be done to us. He'll cleanse us. He'll put a new heart within us, new spirit within us, a new source of life. The spirit and water being poured out. This is what it means to be born again. That something will be done to us to cleanse us 
of our deepest pains, to cleanse us of humanity's deepest problems, and to put a new heart within us that will be, it's almost like a new birth, a new birth knowing the things of God, a relationship with Him. See, this is why Jesus says to his, um, Nicodemus, dude, you're Israel's teacher. You should know this. And he explains it in verse 6. He says, look, flesh gives birth to flesh, but only the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. In other words, you can try all your fleshly observances all you like. The problem is we are still stuck in the same problem we've always been. We need something radically different to heal this world. We need the Holy Spirit. We need the Spirit to do something in us because it's in us that's the problem. And here we go to the crux of the matter. You see, humanity is amazing. Humanity is beautiful. With a great propensity to do loving, wonderful things things. After all, in Genesis 1, we are told that we are made in the image of God, that humanity is God's crowning masterpiece of creation. And we see, don't we, examples throughout history and today of people doing amazingly good and loving things to which we celebrate. But just as much as humanity can be incredible, humanity can also be evil. That humanity can also hurt and wound and destroy one another. That humanity is fundamentally flawed. That we arrive into this world and it doesn't take any parent very long to realize that the natural propensity of children is not to love and be generous. That there is something in us that prevents us from being the kind of people we actually want to be. And we can throw technology, self-help books, education, science, at humanity and politics, and etc., hoping that we can get out of this self-destructive behavior. And yet, here we are in 2022, turning on the news, realizing that with all the advances in science, all the advances in education, all the advances in democracy and capitalism, etc., etc., we still read the horrors of what humanity is doing to one another. Why can't we just get out of this self-destructive behavior? Why is it that we hear what's happening to the environment and yet there's general lethargy? Why is it that we see racial injustice and see, well, it's not my problem? Why is it that we see poverty on a world scale that can be healed, solved, with the collective efforts of humanity, and yet we don't? Why, 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 why? Jesus is kind of saying to us, I don't think I need to prove to you that there's something flawed in humanity. And if you're ever wondering, like, what is the Old Testament about? That's one of the points of the Old Testament, that God gave Israel the best teaching The most wonderful guide, and yet, for years and years and years, they couldn't live into it. They couldn't live up to it. And it's the same for us today. 
Jesus could stand in front of you and say, look, this is the way to life. Here's my best teaching. Here's my best wisdom. In fact, he did that. It's called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, where he says, look, this is the best way to be married. This is the best way to live a generous life. This is the best way to live in community. And you can all read that, and I think universally, generally, people go, yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah. But universally, we try it for about a week and go, I just can't do it. I can't do it. I, I can do a bit. But I mean, you're talking about my thoughts. You're talking about how I speak about people inside. And I can't, I can't contain it. Jesus is diagnosing with Nicodemus, look, the problem is deeper than behavioral. There's a problem inside. You need a different solution. Nicodemus, you've got me wrong straight away. I'm not here to teach. I've come to save. The world doesn't need more teaching. It actually needs rescuing. It needs healing from whatever it is that gets in the way of us doing what we want to do. Which is why Jesus then, in the language of Nicodemus, using what Nicodemus understands, the Old Testament scriptures, Jesus refers to this really old, obscure, and rather strange story from the book of Numbers about Moses and a snake. See, we read this and go, oh my word, Jesus is it's just, he's mental. What's he talking about? But Nicodemus knew exactly what he's talking about. Because in Numbers 21, there's a very obscure short story when the Israelites are escaping from Egypt and they're walking into their new home. It's called the Promised Land in the Old Testament. But they're grumbling because they don't like the journey. Have you ever been traveling with kids and they go, are we there yet, Dad? You know, well, on a national scale, they're grumbling. Not just grumbling, their grumbling has turned to cursing God. I mean, their grumbling has turned to aggression. Their turning has come to rejecting God. Their grumbling has turned to rejecting God. And therefore, in some sense, God's protection over them through the wilderness is kind of they reject God. And whenever you reject God, you reject also his kind of care and protection of you. And they find themselves suddenly being bitten by these wild snakes in the wilderness. And they start to die, and some of them, they get really sick. And, but Moses hears from God and says, look, I'm going to save the people again, but this is how you're going to do it, right? In, Moses, in Numbers 21, the Lord said to Moses, make a snake image and put it on a pole, and when anyone who is bitten looks at it, he will recover. Weird, but, hang, but bear with me. Make an image of a snake, the thing that's killing them, and when they look at it, they will recover. In other words, God's solution was take what was killing them, and that's going to be transformed into the thing that's going to save them. What was killing them will become the source of life. That if they look to that thing, they will be saved. 
And Jesus says to Nicodemus, that's kind of, I'm going to tell you why that story is in the Bible. Because that story is pointing to me. Because this is what I have come to do. That because of my love for humanity, God has come to become what's been killing us. He says, he went to the cross to become the thing that's killing us. In other words, to take the, the viral condition of sin, the thing that's actually broken humanity, he will take it onto himself. He will become it, he says, that he will so absorb it onto himself. It's like he has become the very thing that's destroying humanity. Like He's got a big shringe and injected the condition of sin out of humanity and injected it into himself. He's got the collective pains and brokenness of the world that he has become sin for us. And just like Moses lifted up the snake, so Jesus will be lifted up onto the cross. That whoever then looks at Jesus as their sacrifice, as the one who's taken sin for them, that they will receive the life. Instead of the death that he has experienced. This is why Jesus then summarizes it brilliantly in the most famous verse of the Bible. But now hopefully you'll get why he says this with what he's been teaching Nicodemus. He says, look Nicodemus, God really loves the world that he's given his one and only son. That whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, to become another teacher, to say you're not doing enough. He didn't come as a teacher to condone. He says he came as a savior to save the world through him. Nicodemus, you've got it all wrong. I came... Because humanity will never behave enough to get rid of the problems within. I can throw more teaching at you if you want. But anything about human history has said more teaching just leads to demoralization. There's something here that needs to be fixed. It's what the Bible calls the condition of sin. And God came to fix that not to give us more teaching, but to come to save us from that condition. I remember once when my, heard the news that my mother had cancer, very late stage breast cancer. And she told me, and it was very upsetting, she was gonna go through all the treatment, but. For, for a time, there was a season where the doctor said, also, you can manage, like, treat it through lifestyle. And there was eating habits to do that would be helpful. There'd be things to drink that would be helpful, a certain exercise to be helpful. But we all knew, right, that the behavior, though helpful, was not the cure. That if the doctor said, if she went to the doctor and said, look, Okay, tell me what I must do 
to get rid of this cancer. And he said, well, actually, yeah, all you need to do is this. Then we would be angry with that doctor. All those behaviors would have been good in general. It's good to eat well. It's good to drink lots of water, they tell me. It's good to exercise, allegedly, you know. But Jesus is saying, you don't need better moral guidelines. Because though they're good, they're insufficient to cure the cancer in your soul. I remember the day my mother went under the the surgeon's knife. And she did nothing because something had to be done to her to heal what was going on on the inside, to get it out. And this is fundamentally the message of Jesus. I've not come as a moral teacher. There's enough good wisdom in the world. I've revealed that to you already. I'll reveal some more. But the only thing I'm going to do now in my teaching is reveal to you there's a problem that actually is even more than ever. I've come to actually uproot the problem in your soul to get the cancer out. This is confusing to the religious because the religious often look at Jesus as, great, you're another wise teacher to give us behavior that we can connect with the spiritual world. It's confusing because we're told from the very beginning that world is about what you put in is what you get out. That religious spirituality is about what you practice. That the way to life is through achievement. The way to prosperity is through performance. The way to well-being is through acting in a certain way. We're told, right, that behavior is the answer. And then Jesus comes along and even to the very religious says, look, I don't want to offend you, but I've got to tell you bluntly, that's not enough. Because your behavior will never get the cancer out. Only I can do that. It's not only confusing, but it can be offensive. Like it was to Nicodemus. Like it is to anyone who's super successful. Because we can build our life on our performance and think we're good because of what we've done. And then Jesus comes along and says, "Ah, I'm not telling you what you've done is, is bad, but it's kind of like, it's the wrong currency. It's, it's doing nothing to fix the fundamental problems of humanity. That if you want to be born again, if you want to experience the kingdom of God, if you want to actually get rid of death itself, you can perform all you like, but it's not going to make a dent. You need to be born Again, you need to be cleansed. You need to have the divine surgeon come in with his knife and dig out the cancer that you could actually live a new life. A life that then is not subject to death and destruction. See, what was scandalous and offensive to Nicodemus is the scandal of grace. Is the scandal of what Jesus has come to do. Is why great hymn writers of the past were amazed, so amazed that they pen songs like Amazing Grace. 
Because in Jesus, we do not have another teacher, but we have a Savior. That God has come to overturn the tables of our performance currency. He's come to get rid of the old sacrifice because he is the only sacrifice now that could ever fulfill. He is now lifted up on the cross that when we look to him, we receive forgiveness. We receive the cleansing that he has won for us on the cross. And we can begin to experience a life reborn. Not just for eternity, but for today. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to teach and condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Let's stand together. Thanks for joining us for another week. We'd love to connect with you at one of our gatherings or online at vintagechurchla.com.